The closet door in my bedroom has to be closed at night in order for me to go to sleep. As you might guess, there's a story behind that. When I was little, I got sick a lot. I had pneumonia a lot, bronchitis, lots of different things. I had mumps twice. My parents didn't even know it was possible. So I was sick a lot. And one of the things that happened to me when I got sick was I'd get these really high fevers. And lots of times when I had a really high fever, I'd start to hallucinate. And I remember one night I had a high fever and I was hallucinating and I looked across the room at my closet and the door was slightly ajar and I could see movement inside of my closet. And slowly the door to my closet opened up and Frankenstein's monster came out and walked across to my bed and attacked me. And my parents heard my screams and they came in and they assured me and it was all fine. And to this day, the door to the closet has to be closed in my room in order for me to sleep at night. Now, thankfully, our closet now in our bedroom is on the other side of our bathroom. So I can sleep with the bathroom door open. That's not a problem. It's just the closet has to be closed. And I've discovered that I'm not the only one who has these weird phobias. Um, I know a couple of people who, like, when they get up in the middle of the night, if they have to go to the bathroom or something like that, have to kind of jump away from the bed because there could be alligators underneath the bed. So there's a lot of phobic fear around. But there's also just a lot of fear in general around. We fear a lot of things, whether from hallucinations or overactive imaginations or from reality-based things. There's a lot of fear. And fear motivates a lot of what we do. And scripture talks a lot about fear. And there's one particular passage we're going to look at today out of Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than any number of sparrows. Don't be afraid. Well, context is always king. We never want to just rip something out. We want to look at what the context is. And you have to start with how the original hearers of this would have heard it. And then you can work from that to how we apply the message. You get on shaky ground if you look at directly the Bible and go, how does this apply to me? You have to ask, what was it originally saying to the people who first heard it? And then you can ask, how do we apply it to us? So we got to look at the context. So Jesus brings some a priori assumptions into what he's talking about here. One of his assumptions is that he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to people who are sold out for the kingdom of God. And he's talking to people who have made a deep commitment to follow him. These are folks for whom following God's plan and purpose for their lives is the most important thing. And then his assumption is that these people are being sent out to live their lives for the kingdom of God and to share the gospel. Because in God's eyes, we are on mission. We are part of his plan and purpose for redeeming and renewing and recreating the world and every person in it. And if we don't understand that, if we don't get what Jesus' assumptions are here, 
will never get what following Jesus is about, and the rest of this passage will make no sense whatsoever. So Jesus is assuming that these are people who are sold out to him, who are following his plan and his purpose on mission. Jesus assumes that these are people who have found a real deep sense of peace and hope and a chance to start over again and forgiveness for their sins in relationship to him. And that they are finding a meaningful existence in living into the kingdom of God. And that as they do that, the closer they get to Jesus, the more they change. And that's where some confusion can come up in how we live our lives. Jesus is assuming that we're following him wholeheartedly, and the more we get closer to him, the more we change into becoming like him. But oftentimes, we're not thinking wholeheartedly. Oftentimes, we think, I'm going to dip into this Jesus stuff, but then pretty much do what I want to do. Sexually, that's all me, not you, Jesus. Money, that's definitely me, not you, Jesus. My anger control issues, my priorities, you name it. And we like to reserve control over those things for ourselves. And we jealously guard these things until sometimes they destroy us. We'll sacrifice our marriages, we'll sacrifice our children, we'll sacrifice our integrity, all to maintain our control or to get what we desire. And there's all sorts of carnage to illustrate that it doesn't work to just try to fit Jesus into our lives. To follow Jesus in the way that he assumes in this passage requires us to die to ourselves and then to be raised to new life with Christ. That's the only way this line, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, makes sense. Because this isn't some weird jihadist or cult thing, so far from it. It's not a call to seek death in order to please God like jihad often is because there's nothing that we can do to make God love us anymore. This is just basic Christianity. We die to ourselves, we die to our prerogatives, we die to our priorities so that we can live to Christ and have his priorities take place in our lives. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer a German theologian and pastor who lived in the mid-20th centuries and eventually died in a Nazi death camp said, put this, Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And he meant women too. The thought is, when Jesus says, come to me, it's an invitation to die to ourselves and to live in Jesus's resurrection life. And that's where we find true life and true power when we die to ourselves and we live to God. Now, nobody wants to die. I'm around death professionally, and I know that in some instances, death comes as a friend. But generally speaking, no one wants to die. But for us as followers of Jesus, death is different because Jesus has overcome death. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, the last enemy that is defeated is death. And what he means by that and what the resurrection of Jesus means is that death no longer has the last word. Death is final until Jesus meets it. I began to understand the word final or the, the word eternal um, when I was nine years old. 
When I was nine years old, my grandfather died. And we were really, really close. Even though the memories are getting, uh, you know, a little bit more faint, I, I remember so much about him. I loved him so much. He had such a great sense of humor. I loved being around him. And then he had a series of massive heart attacks, and he died. And it just hit me like a load of bricks. My grandpa was gone. I wouldn't see him again next week. It wasn't like he had gone to work and was going to come home. I, I, I would never see him again. Never is a very long time. And particularly when we think about it in context of people that we will never see again, it can be devastating. And that's why understanding what Jesus has done with the resurrection changes everything. Because the power of someday I'll see you again, instead of I'll never see you again. That power is enormous. God's triumphed over death. So therefore, Jesus can say, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, because we've already died with Christ. So we don't have to be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Jesus says, don't be afraid. But then in the next verse, Jesus says, do be afraid. Okay, so which is it? Are we supposed to be afraid? Are we supposed to not be afraid? Well, the key is we're supposed to be afraid of the right things, not of the wrong things. So let me tackle this in two different ways. First of all, the passage that goes, goes on to say, be afraid essentially of God. Now, it sounds weird to think of being afraid of God. It doesn't really capture the meaning very much because some people are afraid of God, but for all the wrong reasons. Being afraid of something, of God, um, conjures up the wrong image of what we want for God. So maybe fear. Fear God instead. But fear isn't really helpful either, even though we sort of know what that means because fear makes us afraid. It's cognate. You could even put respect in there, respect God. That works, except whenever I hear respect, I hear some overbearing parent going, I'll teach you some respect. So that's not necessarily really positive either. The closest that I could come to what Jesus is talking about here is not be afraid of God, not fear God, not even respect God. I think what Jesus is really getting at is trust God. Trust God instead. Instead of being afraid of all the bad things that could happen, however you define bad, trust God instead. And that's where these other wonderful verses come into play. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Essentially, you have come under the care of God. God is concerned about you and your stuff. You're not simply at the mercy of whatever is happening in your life or whatever is happening in the news cycle or in our culture. You have come under the care of God. And verse 31 underlines what I was saying about being able to trust God. You are worth more than many sparrows. So part of trusting God is understanding who he is and his care for us. And part of that is understanding 
that God's care is exhibited in the fact that he puts limits on some things, like evil. Evil doesn't have free reign. Um, the literal Greek of this passage, don't fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. The, the literal Greek, even though it's extremely wooden, I think is really helpful here. The literal Greek says, do not have a phobia about those killing the body, but the soul not being able to kill. I really love that. They may be killing the body, but the soul not being able to kill that. I, I think it's important how it says that. They can kill all sorts of things about you, but they can't take the very essence of who you are away because who you are belongs to God. This happens uh, in Job too, when at the beginning of the book, and incidentally, this is another plug for the book of Job's because I hope you'll attend my Bible study of it someday. At the very beginning, Satan wants to test Job. And God says that he can do that, but he puts limits on Satan. There's some things that you cannot do. And the person who can limit things is the person who has the power. God limits the, uh, the advantage that evil has. God limits how far evil can go. God limits the fact that they might be able to kill our bodies, but they can't take away our very essence because that belongs to God. So in this thing that you might be dealing with, in this hardship that you face, you can trust God. You don't need to be afraid, especially if you've made living into his plan and purpose a priority. The second thing for us to look at, if trusting God, if being a part of God's plan and purpose is the right thing to be focused on, what are some of the wrong things to be afraid of? Do I really need to be afraid that Frankenstein is in my closet? No. Are there things in the world that should concern me? Sure. Should I be debilitated by those things? No. Because I can trust God. I can trust that God has a mission, that his plan and his purpose will win. There's so much fear in our lives and in our community. There's all sorts of things to be fearful or concerned about partisanship right now. There's all sorts of things to be fearful or concerned about the pandemic. You know, is there going to be another variant or are we almost at the end of it or what's going to go on with that? There's all sorts of things to be concerned about or be afraid of what's going on on the world stage. What's Russia going to do with Ukraine? Is North Korea going to lob another, you know, hypersonic missile? What crazy thing might happen that we didn't even know that we should be worried about? And some of that stuff is worth being concerned about and being an active force for good in, no question. But are those things, and more like that, things that we really should be afraid of? What if the wrong party gets into power? What if the Supreme Court rules the wrong way? What if the lunatic fringe takes over? However you define wrong and lunatic, what if? What if the U.S. isn't a Christian country anymore? What if the pandemic stretches on? What if China takes the place of the United States on the world stage? What if we don't enjoy all the protections of the Bill of Rights in the way that we interpret them? What if our taxes are raised? Or what if there's no concern for the government taking care of the needy or making, or making provision for people who 
need help. Are all of those things concerning? Sure, at one level or another. Are all of those things things that you could be and should have an opinion about? Sure. Are all of those things the right things to be afraid of as followers of Jesus? I'm not so sure. Here's an example. I hear a lot of people fearing that the United States won't be a Christian country anymore. What I want to know is, if being a Christian country is so important, why won't we do the most basic Christian thing and share our faith with the biggest mission field in our lives, that's our neighbor? Why are we concerned on the macro level, but not as concerned on the micro level? One I don't think we should be afraid of, the other thing I think we should be very concerned about. We can be paralyzed by fear of what ifs. We can be paralyzed by fear that life might become more difficult than we want it to be. Or we can trust that we've come under the care of God and live on mission without fear. Now, one little bit of caution. To live on mission without fear doesn't mean to do stupid things or to throw caution to the wind. That's not living without fear. That's just being dumb. To live without fear is about understanding that bad things might happen to us. Difficult things might happen to us. Life might get hard for any number of reasons or in any number of ways. But because of our devotion to Jesus, not because of our politics or our opinions. And that's an important distinction. So getting back to context, following Jesus has never been easy. If we understand that following Jesus and saying we follow Jesus are not necessarily the same things. From the very beginning of Christianity and for thousands of years right up to the present, Jesus' followers have been encouraged by knowing that they have nothing to fear from persecution or difficult times because God cares for them. So the challenge for us in this day and age is to focus on the right things, to trust God for the difficult stuff, and to never lose sight of what's most important. So let me ask you three questions. Where does following God's plan and purpose for your life fit into your priorities? Number two, What's your biggest fear right now? Number three, what's one thing you can do this week to be on mission? Mm -hmm.